Hey, everybody. Welcome to this live edition of the Running Rogue podcast. This is episode 170, and I'm excited to have two guests with me today, Cindy Kuzma and Carrie Cheadle, who wrote the book that I'm holding in my hands called Rebound, basically on the mental side of dealing with injury. Subtitle is Train Your Mind to Bounce Back from Bounce Back Stronger from Sports Injuries. And I think I'm excited to have this conversation for a couple of reasons. One, because we've got the Austin Marathon and Half Marathon this weekend, and Carrie herself is an expert in sports psychology and helping people prep the mind for races. And they together wrote this book on injury. So we'll be talking about both things, mental prep for races as well as how to battle the mind through and beyond Battle the mind. injury. Yes. <laughs> so we're excited to have the two of them here and excited to dig into this. I think particularly for me, it's topical because I just faced an injury that took me out for three or four weeks and had to deal with a lot of these things. And I'm racing this weekend. So you can coach me up <laughs> as we do this at a minimum. We'll spend about 35 or 40 minutes with me asking questions, and then we'll open it up to those in the audience who would like to ask questions as well. First of all, Cindy and Carrie, welcome to Rogue Running. Good to have you here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, we really appreciate it. It's great to be here. I want to start just with your backgrounds and not only what do you do, where you come from, but also why are you an expert on this topic? Uh. (laughs) We'll start with you, Carrie. (laughs) Um, I've been injured many, many times. That's one of my areas of expertise is being injured, unfortunately. (laughs) But um, I also have studied sports psychology and mental training. And so my background is um, I I got my master or my bachelor's in psychology, my master's in sports psychology and decided I wanted to study all of the mental aspects that go into performance. But I had a really interesting experience when I was in graduate school. So this was years ago too many years ago. Uh, I actually, when I went into the program, I had no idea sports psychology existed, didn't know it was a field of study. I just knew as soon as I heard about it, that this is something I need to check out. And so um, I had before that point, my big sports were climbing and and snowboarding, uh, rock climbing and snowboarding and um, and also trail running. And I was a big backpacker. Um, I raced cars. So I did some non-traditional sports. And I, uh, I went through a knee injury that I had a really hard time coming back from um, and really struggled with my confidence, uh, regaining my confidence in my, um, in my sports again and also in my knee. And then fast forward a few years after that, I started this program and about two, I was one year in the program and I got injured. I tore my MCL snowboarding. And it was at that point where I decided, all right, I'm going to take everything that I'm learning about sports psychology and performance and apply it to my injury and see what happens. And the difference was profound. Like it was an incredible difference in my journey from that first knee injury to the second one. And it was a different injury, but same, same knee. And it was just like, I came back to have my best season ever. It was remarkable. And so I knew at that point, like, okay, I got to, I got to, this is an area that like everybody needs to know about this stuff. It shouldn't just be for elite athletes. You were onto something. Yes, I was. Can we talk about car racing for a second? <laughs> I just want to know. You kind of drop that in subtly, but wh- what is that about? <laughs> what kind of car racing in were my you doing? Younger years, I did. I raced a, a kind of. It just was like an open car category. I raced. It's, it's like if you know cycling. I guess you'd. I'd be like a cat three, right? Like a like a recreational sort of racer. But I raced a Mustang Sailing Ford uh, Mustang Sailing, and it was uh, really really fun. And I miss it every day. <laughs> 
Wow. But it's expensive, it. and my the environmentalist in me like could not reconcile it, so I had to I had to leave. Had to give it up. I did. <laughs> we need to get pictures of that. <laughs> Cindy, what about you? Obviously, we know you're, a, or I know you're a journalist. They may not know, but you're a journalist. But tell us about your background and how you got into this connection with Carrie. Sure, absolutely. So I am an adult onset runner. Um, I didn't start running until I was in my 20s and did one marathon and kind of fell in love with the sport. And now I've done 22 and um, have had maybe almost that many injuries. I'd have to list them out uh, to count. I've had Achilles tendinopathy, high hamstring tendinopathy, a few stress fractures. Um, Fortunately, I also went to journalism school and um, have been writing about health and fitness and sports and science and all of that kind of stuff for um, a couple decades now. <laughs> um, and, you know, the saying goes that journalists don't have problems, they have story ideas. So because I had had all these injuries, I was thinking about that a lot and writing about it a lot and writing about um, the elite side of the sport, too. I write for Runner's World and other publications and noticing that um, athletes responded to injuries in different ways and that athletes. Some athletes who, you know, had very severe injuries seem to come back stronger in, in a different way than some athletes who had different injuries. And so I was like, there's something going on here. Started writing about it a little bit. Um, had reached out to Carrie more than once uh, to be an expert source for articles I was working on. And then uh, eventually we decided, we realized that there wasn't so much of the injury experience is psychological, but there wasn't that much out there about it. And we thought a book and a podcast and uh, various other efforts that we work on together now or things that needed to happen to fill the space. Before we drill into our topics, favorite marathon of your 22? Oh, great question. Um, well, Chicago, I live in Chicago. It's my hometown race. I love it. I also love Boston. Um, and then but the one that has my heart is uh, Bayshore Marathon in Traverse City, Michigan. It's on the other side of the lake for me. It's where I first qualified for Boston. It's an out and back on a peninsula. It's flat and it's beautiful and there's something magical about it. All right. Love it. Add that to our list. <laughs> I want to start by talking about the mental side of racing. We'll get to the injury topic on the latter half of the conversation. Anybody racing this weekend? I know at least Terry is. Handful of us. <laughs> Racing Austin Marathon and Half Marathon this weekend on a tough course. Going to you, Carrie. I want to first make the case for why the mental side is important to racing. From your perspective, how much is physical versus how much is mental? Yeah, I, I actually ask athletes that a lot, and I get a lot of different answers. A lo the most common, I'll say, is people say it's 90% mental and 10% physical. I don't know if I agree with that, actually, which some, might surprise some people. Um, but I, I think that it, uh, the mind is always talking to the body, and the body is always talking to the mind. And especially with endurance athletes, I think there's a, it's a pretty equal um, percentage. So just like, you know, you can't do, you know, the, the most incredible mental training in the world, but you ha if you haven't done the physical training, it's not going to matter. That's not going to help you out on the race course. However, you've done all your physical training, but you go out there and you don't believe in your ability to do it, or maybe you didn't work on the psychology of suffering, you also might not be able to accomplish your goals that day. So for me, the way I like to think about it is um, the analogy I like to use. It's kind of like, you know, as an endurance athlete and a marathon runner um, or a runner of any distance, there's all these different spokes in your wheel, right? So if you think about a bike wheel, you think about all the spokes that are in that wheel, each one of those spokes contributes to whether or not you're successful the day of a race. So you've got your nutrition, your hydration, your training, your mental training. So for me, the mental training is another spoke in the wheel. And a wheel is only true, which means 
um, a wheel is, is only strong and doesn't have wheel wobble uh, if each one of those spokes has equal tension. So if one spoke has more or less tension than another, it's not your wheel isn't as, as strong and it's going to have wheel wobble. So for me, it's, it's one of the spokes in the, it's one, it's an equal spoke in that wheel that if you want to get, if you want to um, make sure that all of your physical training comes to fruition on that day, you don't want to leave it up to chance by not tightening that spoke in the wheel of the mental training. So let's talk tactics a little bit. And I, I divide these up, at least for this conversation, into two categories. One would be pre-race tactics. What can I do to prepare? And then the others would be in-race tactics. What can I do on the day itself? So if we're talking about pre-race tactics first, what are the key ones that you'd recommend, especially now that we're, what, three days out from race day right, that we yeah. can actually yeah. put into practice? Because <laughs> the ones I might recommend earlier are, are a little bit different than what I recommend right now. So one of the biggest ones right now, and I'm sure you guys have all heard this, but it really is trust your training. Like there's nothing you can do now about you. So, so trying not to time travel into the past and think about, oh, man, I should have done this, should have done that. But to really trust like. I did everything I could up to this point, and now we get to see what happens. So almost um, seeing it as, I think one of the biggest challenges about running a marathon is, is, is so much training and energy and effort goes into this one day. And so there's so much pressure sometimes to like, I need it to all come together on this one day. So to really just, um, to allow yourself to trust your training and know whatever this race brings, that's what I'm meant to experience this day. And that the race is almost a celebration of all of the work that, that you've done. So it's not just the day of, which I know is really hard sometimes for people to hold on to, but like your experience of, of an endurance event isn't only about the day. It's also a celebration of every time you got up in the morning to go run and you didn't want to do it. The times that you didn't go run because your body was telling you maybe today is a day to take off, like all of the decisions that you made, all of the times that you, you know, did things that were challenging during that process, um, you know, all, all of that comes with you into that day. So to kind of uh, be able to take that broader perspective, I think is really important. Um, I think the other thing to think about that I would do right now that you could still do that would help with your feelings of confidence going into the day of is you can write your own um, like race affirmation list. So in a time where you're feeling calm and confident um, to actually write down your own race affirmations, which are like affirmations are basically positive, powerful statements stated as if they're already true. And so um, and it's it's good to do it in a place where you're calm and confident so that then you've got this list. So I have people do like eight to ten on a list. Um, and that when you're having a moment of like feeling the race day butterflies that you can pull that out and remember, it's like a trigger. It primes your brain. It's a trigger for your brain to go like, ah, oh, that's right. Okay. I can do this. I've prepared for this. I've done my training. I'm ready for today. I can't wait to get there. So whatever you feel like you need to hear in that moment, um, to be able to have it and hold on to and look at it that day of. Cindy, I'll be racing my 20th marathon on Sunday. You've got 22, so you're ahead of me already. If you think back to your early years as a marathoner, those early races, and compare that to where you are now, how do you compare? What have you learned as now a veteran marathon, marathoner that you would want to tell your earlier self, especially about the mental side? That's a great question. I've learned a lot. <laughs> um... When it comes to that mental side, I mean, I think that the focus required for a marathon is something that I didn't really appreciate in the early years. Um, to know, and, and Chris and Missy, we were talking about this the other night, that um, it's, it's not uh, 
you know, you have to sort of be prepared not to hurt every moment, but to like know that you have to stay focused and stay in that moment. And um, I think to Carrie's point about having a, a variety of affirmations, I think what I've learned is that um, you need sort of a variety of different tools in your toolkit to bring yourself back to the present moment. Um, and that that you can't always predict what that's going to be. So you can plan for it. Um, but uh, but to have a whole list and a whole different number of, of mantras and affirmations in different ways to to bring yourself back to the present moment and really stay focused in that moment, um, I think that's that's pretty huge. What have been the key ones for you through the years? Um, focusing on my breath um, and counting my breath, actually. Um, so I have you know a set breathing pattern that kind of goes along with what I feel is my marathon effort. So I might count from one to to 10, 10 times and then start again. And I found that to be incredibly helpful. Um, and then to have affirmations and mantras. And um, another, another technique uh, for self-talk that I found personally really helpful is to put it in the second person uh, to say you do. So my favorite one is you do hard things um, because there's something about that second person that um, it's almost as if someone else is telling you something, like Carrie said, as if it's already true. And I like you do hard things because it's a reminder that you do hard things. Like that is objectively true. It's not I will do this. I want to do this. I'm going to accomplish this goal. It's mm -hmm. like I will. I, you do hard things. You've already done them. You'll do this hard thing too. Yeah. And there's research recently that came out that backs that up. Um, that that's a really powerful technique to do it in the second person. And there's also research about your, the, your breathing technique too um, in terms of uh, getting through those moments where it's really challenging in an endurance event. Yeah. For me, as a spoiler alert, for those that aren't yet to 20 or 22 marathons, is it you still have the freak out moments. Like those don't go away. It's not like that becomes easier. You just have better tools. <laughs> so now, as, now when I have those moments, I can say, okay, well, I know what to do versus early on, maybe I didn't. One of my favorites, Carrie, is visualization. I know you're a big fan of that, not just in racing, but we'll talk about that for injury too. How do you tell people to practice visualization before a race? Uh, it depends on the athlete that I'm working with. So sometimes people will do visualization or imagery before a race and it gets them too activated and too excited. Um, so really for me, when an athlete uses it depends on that factor. It depends on um, how ideally what's optimal for each individual to ha in terms of their emotional state and their activation level before the event. So sometimes I might have them do it the day before or the night before or the morning of, depending on, on the person. Um, so, but it's, it's a really powerful tool in terms of, especially for endurance. Um, you know, this is a lot of the research, you know, when I'm teaching my students in, uh, I'm a professor of sports psychology also, and I'm teaching my students in all of the, like a lot of the literature will say, well, you should do it, you know, whatever you're going to visualize, do it for the length of time that it's actually going to take. So like if you're a skier and you're going down a slope and I was like, that doesn't work for my endurance athletes. I'm not going to have them actually sit there and visualize for however many hours. Yeah. So it doesn't work that way. But one of the ways that it works great for endurance athletes is, um, is th there's a couple different things in particular. One uh, is to, you can visualize certain aspects of your race where, you know, maybe you'll feel challenged and, um, and imagine how you want to feel and how you want to respond in that moment. So what happens with it is you're literally using the same neural pathways as if that event is happening. The only difference is that the motor skills blocked. So you're, you're literally practicing 
your response patterns by doing that. So that can be a really great use of visualization for, um, for, for marathon and how I uh, use it with my endurance athletes. So think about the challenges and address them in your brain, basically. Exactly. In practice before. That's powerful. Uh, let's talk a little bit about in-race tactics. You mentioned already breathing, Cindy, but for you, Carrie, what are the things you recommend for people to bring into the race itself? There's a few different ones. Um, so one of the things that's challenging sometimes uh, is uh, what I, uh, you, I'm sure you've heard it called a lot of different things, uh, but this, I call it the psychology of suffering. So what do I do in those moments where my body's kind of screaming at me to stop and I want to stop, but I know that I can move through this moment. So there's such a powerful connection between the mind and body in terms of perception of pain and especially like perception of, um, of suffering uh, in that way. So there's a few different things that I'll have um, athletes try out to see. One really is the breathing. So, I mean, the first thing always that I do with my athletes is it's not always mental. Like sometimes it re- it's physical. Like if your body's screaming at you, are you getting enough oxygen? Are you hydrated? Is, do you, are you underfueled? Like that, that it's not always mental, but sometimes it is. So when it is, um, then uh, there's a couple different techniques you can do to kind of get through that. Um, and like Cindy was saying, it's great to have m- multiple tools in your toolbox because every once in a while you will get out there and you'll be like, this thing that I usually use all the time, all of a sudden it isn't working and I don't know what to do. Like, so it's nice to have a few. So one of them that um, Cindy mentioned uh, is rig- it's called rhythmic cognitive behavior. So when your body gets to a point where you're really pushing and it's kind of yelling at you, it's, it's talking to you back and it's not pain that's, um, you know, pain that's indicative of maybe an injury, but we're just talking about psychology of suffering. Um, so when your body gets to that point, you can no longer use distraction as a technique. So you have to, um, uh, so one of the things that works in that situation is having something that you continue to repeat to yourself to get through that moment until your body kind of settles back in again. And so it can either be a word that you repeat with each foot strike, or a lot of people like to count their, um, count their steps. So, and, and it's a repetitive. So you're counting, um, instead of like continuously counting for your steps for the entire marathon, you're going, you're counting to eight. Mine's eight. When I run, I like to to do eight. And that's the one that, that I do over and over and over and is really effective for me to get through those moments. So some kind of, and sometimes I will use when I'm finding that's not working, I have a, uh, I might use a different mantra that I just say that word repetitively to myself over and over until I get through that point. The other thing that's interesting about, um, and there's a couple great books that talk about this too. So Endure is one. And then um, uh, what would say the, well, I'll think of it in a minute. There's a couple good books that talk, that start to talk about like, how does this whole process work in terms of endurance and how our brain is trying to allocate resources. Um, so one of the things that will happen is your brain's trying to decide how much energy do I need to put out in this situation? And um, so sometimes giving it an end point because your brain's in charge of protecting your body. So when your brain's like, there's a way I could do this for you know six more miles or three more miles or one more mile, you kind of have to give it an end point instead. And so sometimes picking uh, something that you can see in front of you and saying, I'm just going to run to that point. I'm going to take a a uh, diaphragmatic breath. I'm going to take in as big a breath as I can to help lower my heart rate. Um, and that's a tool in and of itself that I teach athletes. But, and, and then I'm going to decide what's the next point. So you're putting an end point on it in your mind because your mind's like, I don't know how I'm going to continue to the end of this race. 
you don't have to. You just have to, I just need to get to the next tree. I need to get to the next mile marker or whatever that is for you. I'm a huge proponent of mantras. You mentioned that a little bit there. Is there any magic to, develop, to developing a mantra that will work? There is no magic in any of this, just to, to clarify. <laughs> just science. It's all science. Uh, any any yeah. science around yes, the, yes, the mantras <laughs> that you choose? So one of the, um, the things that we know about this idea of mantras is that they are more uh, powerful if it's something that's personally meaningful. Um, so something, um, so one of the ones I had, I did an adventure race. I don't even remember. I, I got a fortune. It was like a cookie, like a fortune cookie. And, and the fortune inside of it said, big green luck everywhere. Like that was the beautiful message in that thing. So that was my like for that. Um, that was a tough race. It was a, yeah. Oh my God. So it was a tough adventure race. And, uh, and that was my like big green luck everywhere. This was my mantra. And it was so Oh my gosh, it worked so incredibly well for me because it had that, you know, so it's different. So saying something like focus or so whatever it is, if focus is personally meaningful to you, then that's so there's your magic, Chris. That there's a little bit of magic yeah. in there. It has to mean something to you. <laughs> yes. I like it. And you really, I mean, you can't steal mantras in, unless it does mean something to you. Sydney, going to you, tell me your darkest place in a race. Oh, wow. What happened? What'd you do? <laughs> Um, in mile two of, I was running the last chance BQ.2 marathon, uh, not this past fall, but the fall before, which is a race they set up specifically to get you to qualify for Boston, which is kind of a whole funny other thing. Um, and mile two, I fell, I tripped and fell and, um, well, got back up really quickly and then was, um, bleeding from my knees the rest of the race. And, uh, it was, um, you know, psychologically, I really did want to step off the course right at that moment. But um, I did kind of a psychological, uh, physical body scan, first of all, like, is anything yeah. seriously hurt? Um, I, I kind of looked at the, at the blood on my knees and thought, uh, well, maybe this is, this is fixable. And I kept going. Um, and it really was um, thinking about the end goal and, and using some, uh, um, breathing definitely lots of deep breathing then too and i'm glad i stayed in that race for multiple reasons i did get my boston qualifying time again and then i got uh what is one of my favorite mantras that is meaningful to me in many ways too um uh there was a pacer that um i somehow caught back up to after i fell <laughs> again and uh he told a story about um how you get to that dark point in the race and this is a dark point i've had in every race and probably everyone who's done a marathon has had this point it's that point where you're very close to your goal, but it really hurts. And you are really tempted to just let go just a little, just so it doesn't hurt so much. And he said, when you get to that moment, what you want to do is imagine you're on uh, Deal or No Deal with Howie Mandel, <laughs> and he's there with the suitcases. And right now, you want to take the deal because you want to stop hurting. But the you that's at the finish line does not want to take that deal because you're going to be upset about it. Um, and that's why I think, you know, the focus and the effort of the marathon is so hard because like no one else, um, if for instance, if I had stopped running when I fell, like no one else would have judged me for that. Um, or if you, if you don't make, make your goal, you know, other people aren't judging you for that. But when you get to the end of the race and you know that you like let off the gas a little bit when you didn't truly have to, that's when you feel kind of that, that regret. And so I've 
now one of my mantras is usually no deal. No deal. <laughs> I guess you also have to imagine there's a million dollars in the case. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Crossing the finish line feels like a million dollars. Was that the hardest part of that race was falling at mile two? Um, <laughs> that's a really good question. Uh, no, it was very, very hard to stay focused after that. <laughs> the rest of the race was very challenging. 24 miles. 24 miles. Of focus. That's tough. Yeah. Well, you got it done. Well done. So I want to switch gears now to talk about injuries. And if you guys have more questions about in-race mental strategy, we can get to that at the end. We've all dealt with them. Raise your hand if you've had a major injury that's taking you out for more than a month. Everybody. <laughs> I know I just had one myself. So I want to start with the question, you know, about framing. And, you know, I think there's a natural tendency when injury happens to be mad, to be sad, to be depressed. All of those things are normal responses that you probably need to have to process it. But once you get past that point, there is a framing opportunity to frame the injury, not, not as an injury, but as an opportunity to learn. So talk about that, Gary. Yeah, it's, um, so it is normal and in some ways essential to have some of those initial emotions that you go through when you're, when you're injured. Um, and then we have a tendency to, to view our experience under a microscope a little bit. So it's, um, and one of the things I think is important to do is to be able to step back from that experience and see it, see this injury as a part of your bigger picture and your part or a part of your bigger uh, athletic story. Um, and when we view it from that vantage point, it feels very different than uh, when we are looking at it under the microscope and feeling like this is the worst thing that has ever happened. I can't believe I have to go through this. Um, so I, one of the things that's been really remarkable too about like the work that I do and then the stories that we've heard from all of the athletes that um, Cindy had an opportunity to, in to interview in the book and all of the athletes we've interviewed on our own podcast, the Injured Athletes Club podcast, they've said, you know, I wouldn't want to go through this again and I would never wish this upon anyone else, but I'm so glad that I did because I'm a better athlete because of it. So I think helping people understand that that's something that's possible and that in a lot of ways, there's so many opportunities uh, within being injured when you're ready to hear that, because sometimes we're not ready to hear that. Um, but, but that when you are ready, that there are some ways to look at the obstacle in front of you and ask yourself, okay, I would prefer not to be injured, but I'm here. So where is the opportunity? Is there some other area of my performance that I could work on that would really serve me in a greater way when I come back to, um, when I come back into my sport. And a lot of people find that have found like they understand their bodies more, or they, um, have worked on a different, like they worked on their mental training. They worked on a different part, their core strength or something else that they realized actually served them tremendously well once they were back in action again. You mentioned Shalane Flanagan in the book. She of course won New York after a sacral stress fracture. I would add to that, after she had a major foot injury in 2008, she went on to win an Olympic medal. So her two of her biggest moments in her career came after the two major injuries she faced. So that's just one example. For you, Cindy, what's an example of a life lesson or a sports lesson that you've learned from injury? Um, one thing I learned was the importance of strength training and also that I actually enjoy it or that I can enjoy it. Um, after 
I think my third stress fracture, um, a doctor recommended to me that I try lifting heavy. Um, and that wasn't something that I'd ever done before, but um, I found a trainer and uh, for a while I was in the boot and <laughs> hopping to the gym in the boot. And, um, you know, in that time, um, learning that and, and feeling really strong and powerful in a different way um, was just uh, for my mindset at that time and getting through that injury was huge. And then knowing too, that that actually did help protect my bones and my body and, um, prevented future injury. I mean, granted it hasn't prevented every future injury, but knowing that it was something that I could do. Um, and, uh, and then too, I, um, I, I will never win a marathon. Um, let alone the New York City Marathon, but, uh, but I did have the opportunity to, a couple years after I started strength training, um, there's a race uh, up in Quad Cities uh, near where I live in Chicago, and they have something called the Pump and Run, where you can, uh, you go to the expo and you do some uh, bench presses and um, bicep curls, like to a given percentage of weight based on your body weight. And then they uh, subtract however many you do from your marathon time. And then like whoever wins, whoever has the lowest time after all that calculation wins that competition. And I won that competition. And let me tell you, that felt incredibly sweet. So I learned that I could win something. There you go. I love it. But learning lessons from injury is hard because there is that period of grief, depression, emotion that comes with that initial period. How do you get through that, Gary? One of the things that um, I think is important during that time period is for athletes to know that that's a normal part of that experience, that everybody's going to go through that. I actually had a, a student one time ask me, you know, so since you're an expert in this and you, when you get injured, do you still go through that? Like, do you go through um, denial and, and anger and all of that? And I said, yeah, absolutely, because that's a normal part of that experience. The difference is I can see it when it's happening and I have the tools to be able to know what to do in that moment, um, but I still go through it. So I think just normalizing, I think that's a really critical piece is normalizing that whatever it is that you're feeling, whatever emotion you're going through, I, I guarantee you someone else has been there and has felt that exact thing. And whatever you're feeling is really okay um, in that moment. And that I think the other thing to hold on to is Whatever you're feeling right now isn't necessarily how you're going to feel forever, but our brains kind of hold on to that sometimes and think that this is how it's always going to feel and really trusting that, that I'm not, and that was, has been my mantra through some of my injuries when I'm in those kind of darker places of like, I'm not always going to feel like this. I'm going to get through this. In my mind, I parallel it significantly to losing someone there's a grief associated with it, which might seem like a trivial comparison because obviously losing a person in your life is way bigger than, a, than an injury, but a lot of those emotions and feelings can be the same. How much does it compare to something like that, to mourning the loss of a loved one, for example? Yeah, if you have a high athletic identity, there can be some um, really powerful parallels in that way where when I talk about, um, you know, when I talk to athletes about the grief process, and that that might be what they're experiencing. Um, if that is what they're experiencing, as soon as they hear that, like, oh my gosh, that's what's happening. I'm grieving because I'm, there's so many things that feels like you, you lose when you're injured. You sometimes you feel isolated from your community and your friends. So you might feel a loss there. You've, um, have lost maybe your, the, um, the outlet you have for your stress management. You've lost 
your ability to use your body the way that you're used to using it. So there's all these things and you've lost your athletic identity in that moment. Um, so there's, uh, there are a lot of parallels, although um, with the grief process, you, uh, it's not like you go through these stages, these five different stages and then go, okay, good. I went through that stage. That means I'm done with it. I'll still do that. I still ha like hold it in my mind that it's, this, that it's this linear thing. And then I'm like, I already went through anger. I don't understand why am I angry, but it doesn't work like that. It's, you know, it's other things can trigger it as you hit these setbacks during that journey. But, um, so, so sometimes when I conceptualize it that way, it's very, um, athletes get it. They're like, oh yeah, that's what's happening to me. And then other athletes, they don't, um, experience it that way. And it's more experienced like a stressor. Like this is a stressor that's in front of me. What do I need to do in order to handle this stressor and get, and get through it? Um, but when you, you know, when you're, when you have a high athletic identity, it can, it can, it does feel like that. It feels like you've lost a part of yourself, which is why you go through this grieving process. And I'm glad to hear you recognize it as such as a coach too. I mean, I know you have personal experience, obviously, but I feel like what happens so often is, is athletes find themselves like feeling guilty for feeling the way they're feeling. And that certainly doesn't um, aid in the process in any way. In fact, it complicates things a lot. And so, um, yeah, it's really important to recognize that it is that loss. One of the thing I, one of the things I find hard once you get past that point about an injury is getting into a new groove. You know, when you're running, you've got your routine, you're showing up these days to run with your friends. You've got your workouts on this day. You're involved in an activity that you get that makes sense. I can do 800s on the track. I know what that's like. Yeah. But when you get to that point of injury, suddenly your routine changes, your activities need to change. You started a strength program, but that might have been very foreign to you. And that's really hard to establish a new routine. What, how do you tell people to cope with that process of finding their groove, finding that new routine that works? Part of it is actually re, um, is it regrouping with your goals. So you had these goals that you were working towards, and sometimes there needs to be uh, a very deliberate process of, um, of adjusting those goals and changing those goals now that you're injured and identifying what those things are. So, and, and putting that into your training plan, right? So if you're an athlete, you're used to that format, you're used to sort of that template and that way of navigating the world. So putting everything into that format is something that can be, um, that can be really beneficial. It's interesting. We find that with college athletes where when they get injured, you think, oh, it's a great opportunity. You're going to get caught up on your classes. And um, what typically tends to happen is that their grades drop because they're so used to, this is the thing that I orient my whole world around. Right. And I and I and I fit in my studies in these pockets because that's when it fits and that's the only time it fits. So there is this um, it can be really hard to like you lose your bearings a little bit just in that way when you're used to like this is how my world works. And suddenly that thing isn't there. I'm not really sure how to do this without it. So it's really critical to 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 recognize, OK, so the goals I was set set out for myself originally are no longer there. My recovery is now my sport. So what do I need to do in order to, what are the, my new goals in order to now put all of my energy and resources into my recovery that I was putting into my training? And there's a really nice example in the book of, in, about this, um, a triathlete, Fiona Ford, and she actually tracks, um, she has a whole book herself too called Back on Track that's like really nitty gritty into the details of her recovery. But, you know, instead of like tracking her power or mileage or whatever she you know tracks like her range of motion and she like sets up her recovery log just the same way as she does her training log and finds that really powerfully motivating so just like uh 
recovery is now your sport. Uh, we say that a lot, and I think it really resonates. It is your sport, and it may require developing new friends. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a big part of, at least in our community, some of the loss that people feel is they have that routine. They get to see their friends and their workouts and on long runs and get those conversations out of the way that they maybe can't have anywhere else, but then suddenly that goes away because they can't operate in the same way. So how do, how do you recommend coping with that part of it? It's funny. I, I think one of the things that I'll tell people sometimes that I, I think sometimes we lose sight of and is that you we hold people in these categories right well you're my running friends so I see when I run like I can't just like hang out with you outside of running like what would we do I don't know what do you even look like I don't know (laughs) right so that it's okay to reach out because it is really hard where athletes sometimes feel like they're isolated and feel like their teammates aren't reaching out to them or their running friends aren't reaching out but I think sometimes we're isolating ourselves also and not reciprocating in that way and reaching out so that it really is okay. Like, you know, on the one hand, I do have some athletes that will be like, well, now I've got time to spend with other people that, that maybe I didn't have time to spend with because I was in the middle of my training. Um, but also I encourage them to, you know what, you can still connect with your, with your teammates or your running buddies, and you might just have to be the person to reach out to do that. And I think that's hard sometimes because when you're the person that's injured, you feel like, but they should reach out to me because I'm the one that's injured and they should know that this is the support that I need, but it doesn't always work that way. So it's okay to reach out to your running friends or your sports friends, whatever your sport is and say, Hey, do you want to, you know, grab lunch or grab coffee? And they might be like a little bit uncomfortable and look at you strangely at first, but then they'll be like, Oh yeah, sure. Why not? (laughs) Do you want to hang out? Yeah, exactly. I think some of it too is also finding new friends that might also be in a similar place. You know, those that may need to be doing strength and rehab can do that. You can do that with them. We have uh, some members of Rogue that go do aqua jogging together, which if you've ever aqua jogged, it's the worst thing on the planet, (laughs) I think. So you need somebody to do it with. So, yeah, find people that you can rehab with is another tip I'd throw in there. Another thing I want to dig into is this idea of being curious in the context of your injury. And this is something I know personally that I really dig into because I'm a coach and I want to figure out how things work. And I also know that the resources I might be tapping into, medical resources, they don't have all the answers either. We're all figuring this stuff out. And especially they may not have all the answers related to how it's manifesting in me. So digging into being curious and figuring out how different modalities might help me, how different movement patterns might help me, gives me something to do and focus on that can be really helpful to take my mind off the the sadness from not being able to run. So give us a little bit on that and why it's a tactic that can be helpful for people. There's a couple different reasons that can be such a powerful tactic. One is when you get curious about it, it, um, it shifts your perception of control. So now you're focusing on things that you have some influence over and, you, and, and focusing on something you can do versus a lot of times when we're injured, we have a tendency to just focus on all of the things that we're missing out on or all the things you can't do. Um, the other thing it does is it provides this really remarkable way to step outside of yourself and and look at yourself um, from like as if you're the scientist and being a student of yourself to try and understand yourself a little bit more. And and when we do that, there's less of an emotional attachment. So we might be able to see things as a little more clearly and from a place where um, we can handle it. 
and and sort of tolerate it when you're able to do that and step outside and go, okay, well, why am I reacting this way? And what is happening underneath this? And um, and this isn't working. So where else can I get information about something that might actually work? And and really that um, cultivating that curiosity can be a really powerful tool in your tool belt. You mentioned earlier that the recovery process is not linear. The emotions associated with it are not linear. How the progress manifests is not linear. Going to you, Cindy, setbacks are part of the process. And I know in the book, there's a lot of examples of people that overcame setbacks through the process. And so either from those examples or from your personal experience, talk about what you learned about dealing with the ups and downs of an injury cycle. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I would say that like, you know, the, the title of the book rebound is, is kind of all about that. Like we, um, there's, you know, we were thinking about the idea of a ball, ball bouncing back, but when you think about a ball falling and then bouncing up and then it falls down again and then it bounces up again. So every time you hit a setback, it's sort of like an opportunity to, to view this, um, you know, to view the situation as it's an opportunity to view the situation as an opportunity. Um, I mean, I think about the athletes in the book, and I think about uh, she's not a runner, but there is a basketball player, Jackie Jamelos, who had um, six ACL tears in college, and she uh, came back from each one of them, and she learned a little bit something different. A little bit, she learned something a little bit different every time, and um, you know, she learned something about her body. And then one of the things that she also talked a lot about um, the the reason that she was able to keep coming back was she learned how to play with her head and not just her body. She used all of that time to um, watch the game from the sidelines. Like, you know, you don't see the same perspective on the court as you do from the sidelines. And so she used, um, again, each setback in each, op- each, no, I'm repeating myself. <laughs> she used each setback as a new opportunity to learn something new. So. I tell you, I wouldn't be a running coach had I not had a tibial stress fracture training for my first marathon because then I used that as an opportunity to learn how not to do that again. So I can attest to that. One of the things that you cover in the book is skills associated with the mindset of recovery and you have levels of those skills. And you've got level three skills, kind of Hall of Fame level skills for dealing with this process. And I wanted to talk about a couple that I think are interesting. One is this idea of psychological flexibility, because I think that's, I mean, we're talking about Jedi mind trick kind of stuff, I think, because you you have this injury cycle that's requiring a lot of you, not only physically, but also mentally. And because there is no linear path, you're having to constantly adapt and be flexible throughout the process up here. So what, what do you mean when you say psychological flexibility? And to me that I think that's probably one of my that's probably my favorite mental skill in there. And it is kind of high level Jedi mind sort of stuff that we're talking about. So um, it's is it possible to adapt to the circumstances that are in front of me and perceive things in a way that are beneficial to the circumstances that I'm facing? I think the challenge that people have sometimes with this idea is that they feel like, well, I'm just making an excuse, Um, but it's not. It's not about that. It's about being able to kind of read the room and adjust to what's happening in the room in a way. Um, so, and, and are you able to do that in service of yourself and what you're, um, and what it is that you're going through? So one of the ways I like to think about it is, you know, so a sign of your 
physical fitness is like, so if you, you know, sprint and then how quickly your, your heart rate comes back to your resting heart rate might be like a small sign of your physical fitness. Part of your mental fitness is how quickly can you adjust to something that's in front of you and make that and adapt to what's happening. Like how that ability to um, not fight against what's happening in the moment and, and accept like, ah, all right, I wish this wasn't happening. I'd prefer it to be different, but this is happening. What do I need to do? Um, I think that's a, to me, it's one of the most powerful skills we can cultivate. Another one that's level three that might seem obvious, but I think is level three because it's just hard, is this idea of generosity, giving yourself grace during the injury cycle. So Cindy, I want you to talk about that from your experience, because it is so hard to be kind on yourself, because first of all, you're beating yourself up for getting injured. You know, if I hadn't done X, I wouldn't be here in the first place, or if I'd done this differently. So you're beating yourself up constantly, and then those setbacks bring more of that. So why is generosity so hard in a phase like that? Um, I think it is because, like you say, we tend to ruminate on those things and we, we tend to time travel. Carrie and I talk about this a lot, that um, you are always back there. Like, what if I hadn't done that last run before I finally felt the stress fracture? Or what if I had, you know, structured my training differently? Or we tend to fast forward into the future um, and think, oh my gosh, I'm missing this race. I'm, um, what's going to happen? How long is this going to take? Um, so with all of those, with our energy going out in all of those directions, I think um, we just find ourselves stretched a little thin. And then when the stress of each thing, each setback that comes along, it's, um, we don't have that resources to show ourselves the self-compassion that we need. Um, so, and research does show that, um, you know, there are a couple, that self-compassion actually is really important in the recovery process. That, that hardiness, which is like a, a kind of idea that is related to resilience, which you might think about as being tough and resilient and hard, that that is important. But that self-compassion is equally important. That ability to say the kinds of things to yourself that you would say to your friends who, injured, who are injured, that you do say to your friends that are injured. Um, sometimes it's just really hard to, um, to have that perspective. So why it's so hard? We're human. <laughs> yeah. I think it's hard, too, for athletes sometimes because I can't tell you how many times I've, like, can I, am I allowed to swear on the podcast? I won't. Yes. Swear. Okay. Okay. So a lot of my yes. athletes are like, Carrie, don't give me any of that touchy feely bullshit. Like, I don't want to like, so sometimes this idea of self-compassion and self-care, they're like anti, but when you think about it instead in terms of, um, uh, this idea of healing and building resilience and building confidence back up. And you think about telling somebody in your life that's your most cherished teammate or loved one. Um, if you said to them in that moment, some of the internal dialogue that you say to yourself, you would never, you would never say that to that person. Right. So is it possible for me to understand? It's again, that curiosity piece. Like, am I capable of stepping outside of myself and recognizing me as a person separate that is going through this really challenging thing? And can I have compassion for that person? Um, so it's not about like, um, you know, and, and, and doing that in service of my greatest recovery through this process. So if there's anyone listening that's freaking out about self-care and self-compassion, like, that's another way to think about it. <laughs> we talked about visualization as it relates to racing. There's a really interesting anecdote in the book about a football player with an ankle injury who was using visualization as it related to upcoming doctor's visits and the news he might get with that to basically prepare himself for what would be to come 
I found that a really as a really fascinating example because I've never thought about visualization in the context of going to a doctor and playing out the scenarios that might happen there. So give me a little bit on that example. So again, that's a it's another way to help um, practice the response that you want in that situation. So you're practicing a response that you feel like um, when I'm in that situation, ideally, how do I want to respond in order to get through this moment successfully with my you know, feeling calm and confident and, and composed and, and get to that moment of acceptance a little bit sooner. Now, that's not to say that you're not going to feel your feelings, and that's a really critical, important part of this process, but um, I, you're laying the groundwork in that situation for, uh, okay, if, if X, then Y. It's, it's really interesting because sometimes working with athletes through that, it brings up so much anxiety just to even imagine it that they don't, but that's, I mean... So then there might be some work we have to do to get there to where you're ready, but it really can be a very powerful thing to do for yourself is to think through those things and think through, okay, I'm now I'm prepared if that happens and I've already thought of my response instead of being in the moment. And as soon as you hear something from your medical team, you're, you can't even hear what the next thing is, right? So that's another reason why that's kind of critical is I need to be able to be composed in that moment enough to be able to hear the next thing that the doctor is going to say. But if I haven't planned this, I'm, you're not going to hear anything that that man or woman says after that moment. Yeah. And that athlete is Joe Holder, who um, is not only was he a collegiate football player, he's a really well-known Nike trainer in New York now. And this technique that he uses is called contrasting, or he calls it contrasting. Um, and I think that um, what's really interesting about it, too, is in addition to using it for something like the doctor's office, he used it a lot for when he was returning from an injury. And um, I mean, fear of re-injury is something else we can talk about, too. But, um, you know, he would imagine, OK, I'm going to go on this run and everything's going to feel great. Or I'm going to go on this run and I'm going to feel a little bit of pain. And then when that happens, I'm going to note that pain and then I'm going to stop or I'm going to continue, you know. And we know that um, the way that you your your stress level and 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 you know when Carrie talks about like having to work on things and feeling that anxiety and not even be able to hear anything well imagine what that does to like your perception of pain in that moment too um so I think it can be really helpful in preparing for those kinds of things and reducing that anxiety and getting an accurate feeling of where you actually are with your injury too you brought up the comeback trail so let's go there as someone who's had three stress fractures myself I can relate that it's scary coming back from a stress fracture because there's a lot of uncertainty about diagnosis and how that evolves and how much time you're supposed to take off before you resume activity. So there's a lot of anxiety that comes with building back. And I would say for me in each of those cases, it took probably six to eight weeks before I felt completely normal again and stopped thinking about it after resuming activity. So that's a tough road. And Cindy, you've dealt with it. So talk about that how has it been hard for you in coming back from injury and is stress fracture the best example of that challenge or is something else i think stress fractures are a really good example of that challenge because you do get these phantom pains right um and there's no like external sign of of what's happening in your body and you just um i i think it's it's really really challenging i mean i remember a time when um i had a stress fracture in my femur in the in the shaft of my femur and you know the first the doctor that I went to um for it wasn't super compassionate and said something to me the first time I went in like well if you hadn't come in now your leg would have just broken completely 
Um, and so that scared me so much that, um, you know, after some rehab and some time and I followed the steps, I did everything I was told to do. And then I was on a trip and I was walking and I started feeling pain in that same area and I freaked out. I mean, I was like, should I order some crutches? Should I get someone to like wheel me around in a wheelchair? Like, is my leg going to break as I'm like walking around on this trip? And I called the doctor and he almost like sort of laughed at me, which is like, we can also talk about relationships with your healthcare provider. Um, he's like, no, you can walk. You'll be fine. Um, but those moments, I mean, that fear and that pain was very real for me. And it comes in waves on and off for, yeah, months after a stress fracture, I would say. So what are our strategies, Carrie, to deal with that fear of coming back, that fear of re-injury? Part of it is knowing that that's a normal part of the process. Like our, because our brain is wired to protect our body, that you're just going to, uh, it's so fascinating, that whole process. Like anytime you've been injured, what, what, for years, you might still, um, anytime you feel any kind of sensation, not even necessarily pain, but you feel something that feels strange in that area and you're like, what's happening in my knee, right? This knee, it did it the other day. And this was like 20 years ago now, this knee that I injured, it was like, what's up? Oh my God, I feel it in the same spot. And I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to surgery again. I actually didn't do that because I have all these great tools, but I was like, oh, that's interesting. But it made me think about that. Like, oh, wow, it's taken a long time for me to not freak out about any sensation, which is normal. That's a normal part of our protective mechanism. So knowing that like, oh, okay, so my brain's trying to protect my body. It's putting me on high alert. Um, but to know too that if you've elicited your stress response in that situation, it's going to intensify. It will intensify the pain that you feel, um, and so making sure that you're breathing and you're talking to yourself through it um, is an important part of that um, of that process. The other thing, if we're talking about sort of fear of reinjury as you're ramping up your um, physical activity, and so maybe you're doing um, different rehabilitation exercises um, that are testing you out in like unstable conditions with whatever part of your body is injured um, or you're getting back to higher intensity training that um, to really think about building building smaller confidences as you work up so that your brain keeps sending the message to your body like oh okay I can handle this my body's strong my knee's strong I'm I this is something that my body's capable of doing yeah it's interesting the psychosomatic part of it is interesting. You know, I had a nerve injury that I was dealing with in January where, and it was causing my hamstring to do funny things. And the hamstring itself was fine, but the nerve was telling it that something was wrong and causing it to seize up. And truly, it was as much in here as it was an actual physical injury. And so part of dealing with it was getting my mind to accept that there was nothing wrong and I'm talking about the subconscious part of my mind, not necessarily the conscious part, because obviously consciously I could rationally say it was. And so to me, that, that psychosomatic connection coming back is, is powerful and it's something we have to recognize. Absolutely. And you've got to throw a, a wrench in that negative feedback loop and all of these mental training tools are the tool, that's the wrench that helps you kind of break that, that cycle. And then as you do that consistent, consistently, breaking that loop, that's when you, you start to create a different neural pathway. So how did you do it? <laughs> a lot of nerve glides. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's kind of what you talked about. It was all about showing my body that everything was okay. So basically I had to, in a lot of different ways, show my leg and the nerve that everything was okay. It thought something was wrong and it held on to that for three or four weeks. 
but doing little things to show it that it was okay and doing those repetitively as much as possible. And it was a long, drawn-out, very repetitive process, but eventually the body's like, okay, it is actually okay. And then it all went away just as quickly as it came, which is kind of nuts. Isn't that amazing? It's like sometimes you get an MRI and it magically makes pain disappear. It's like, I didn't know that was a treatment for that, but (laughs) apparently it is. So last question for me, and then I'll open it up to the group. You talk at the end in the last chapter about the rebound lifestyle, because once you get over it, even once you get through that initial comeback period of having those fears, there's still things you have to deal with that, you know, might either be avoiding injury or just approaching life in a new way. And so when you say rebound lifestyle, what do you mean? I think part of that idea is that if we conceptualize injury as a stressor and all of these tools in here are meant to help you get through that stressor, you're going to, as you go through life, you're going to have other setbacks and have other challenges. And so all of these things that, that we talk about in the book, they're all things that I work on with my athletes that are healthy athletes that are in their performance, but also they apply their life skills and they apply it to other areas of their life as well. So the rebound lifestyle, I mean, a lot of it has to, comes back to that psychological flexibility is, um, you know, can I step back from the situation in front of me and define it in another way? So one of the things I talk about is um, this idea of obstacles to opportunity. So uh, when you're able to move from seeing an obstacle to an opportunity, it has to do with how you're conceptualizing and looking at the thing, the thing in front of you, the challenge that's in front of you. So if you define that, you look at that thing, and you define it, it's like, oh, my God, this is going to suck. That's going to shape um, all of your thoughts, your emotional state, what you see, you, the choices that you make. It shapes everything. Then if you can just take one step further and go, oh, this is going to be hard. There's a subtle mindset shift with this sucks. This is going to suck to this is going to be hard. And then can you make another step and go, oh, this is going to be a challenge. And you have another shift. And then can you move to where's the opportunity? This could really be an opportunity. And the more you do that, the easier it becomes. And that's when you can get to that point where you might be able to adjust more, uh, more quickly with, uh, with practicing that. So the whole um, idea of this, um, you know, the rebound lifestyle is, can I apply this now? Everything that I've learned, can I take this and continue to apply it to other areas of my life? Because challenges are just a part of the human experience. Um, so if I can accept that I'm, I'm going to face some challenges in front of me. Why not give myself some tools ahead of time to be able to handle some of those challenges? Last word from you, Cindy, before we open it up. As a co-writer, you must be an expert at applying these tools in your own running and life. What, what's been the biggest thing for you in terms of getting to that rebound lifestyle place? I think it really is the knowledge that practicing these small skills every day really does add up to profound change. Um, Because it's easy to write about this kind of stuff and think about this kind of stuff and be like, yeah, that makes sense. I get it. I get it. I get it. Um, But when you actually do it and you do it on a regular basis every day, you practice, you show up, you train, um, it changes everything. and. I think that I appreciate that on an entirely new level now. All right. Questions from the audience. Um, thinking about preparation for a big race, um, could you talk a little bit about uh, this experience that I've had where it's like, I'm going into a big race, I'm ready, I'm prepared. And then the nerves kick in and it's like, 
I'm either going to PR or DNF. Like it's like, it becomes like a U-shaped curve. It's like one or the other. They have nothing to do with each other. Um, is that something that you've seen other athletes as they prepare? Is that a common experience? You're the only one. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, um, yeah, it's interesting how we can get into that sort of sucked into that, that all or nothing feeling. And a lot of it has to do with, um, the physiological response that's happening. And it feels like that because what's interesting about that stress response is that um, sometimes what we might perceive as anxiety could also very easily be perceived as excitement. And maybe you're just overly excited. So that's why you can kind of get pulled into that like, this is going to be the best race of my life or the worst race of my life right in front of me. Um, so one of the things I'll do with my athletes is, um, especially my endurance athletes, I have them all create their own pre-performance plan. So backing up like, um, you know, cause it, it, your race doesn't start when the gun goes off. It starts when you start kind of thinking and preparing about that race. And a lot of times you have a race plan, but we don't plan for that time period before where we tend to have a lot of anticipatory anxiety. And so having it outlined where you look at all the different time segments going into it, into your race and looking at, all right, ideally in this section, um, so say like it's the night before, what do I need to be doing? Ideally, how do I want to feel during that time? And then what do I need to be thinking about in order to accomplish that feeling? So it's another kind of template of like, you've done this in a time where you're calm and composed. Then when you're starting to freak out, you can pull it out and go, ah, this is what I need to be focused on right now. Because your brain just like, if you don't tell it where to focus, it's just going to go to its default setting, um, wherever that, and that setting is going to be whatever you're used to. So if you're used to, and at, I mean, really it, it is like at the, at its most basic level, we get good at what we practice. So if you've practiced freaking out before races, you're going to get really good at freaking out before races, right? So you have to give your brain something else to focus on. Yeah. But it's normal. Yeah. <laughs> Other questions? So you had mentioned that you practice these things every day. Do you have tips for like doing your tips? Like how do you make sure to remember that that's part of your daily habits? Uh, that's a really good question. Um, that's a really good question. Um, I try to um, just, I think it comes down to like the scale of like how stuck I'm feeling and how I, so. So a good reminder to try a mental technique uh, to turn an obstacle into an opportunity is to like face an obstacle, which, <laughs> which happens a lot of times. So I try to just think um, to remember. And I mean, maybe it helps that I have like book covers around my <laughs> office too. But I try to just remember that when I'm feeling frustrated about something, whether it is like a deadline at work or a, um, or a training run or a single workout or a big race or that any of those things, are opportunities to practice a, a skill that's in this book. And I, you know, I, I think, you know, not just because I um, think, because I, I wrote the book, but I think it is like really helpful because it does give you all of these really specific techniques that you can practice at different points during the day. Um, and I guess there could be other things you could try in terms of like habit stacking or like giving right. yourself a clue, but maybe you have even a better yeah. idea. Yeah, well, I think, you know, sometimes I'll have athletes and coaches will, will actually put it, their mental training into their training plan as just a trigger reminder, right? So for me, it was like, I'll do that with, I play guitar. And so if I don't, for some reason, I can't hold on to that thing. But if I put it in, if I actually have the, the visual trigger and I see it, same with my physical therapy exercises for my arm. I had to write it in my schedule or it was not going to happen. So, um, so I'll have them put like 
I'm going to do my visualization. I'm going to do my affirmation list. I'm going to regroup on, you know, there's all different drills in there. So depending on what it is that you're working on, um, actually putting it into your, um, into your training plan um, is something that can help. And then I think it's just like, you know, reading books about it and doing some of these things, keeping it front of mind kind of helps you remember to um, like each time you come back to it, it'll get easier for it to come become now sort of um, integrated into what you do instead of something you have to think about pulling in. Well, one of the level three skills in the book is mindfulness. And I feel like this is a big part of that daily practice, which is being able to stay present in the moment and really focus on what you can control versus all the stuff that seems to be swirling that you can't control. So from a mindfulness perspective, what do you recommend people do to practice that? There's a few different ways to practice that idea of mindfulness. And that's absolutely something that can be practiced every day. So it can be something from like traditional meditation. Um, There's great apps out there now that take you through guided meditations. Um, I'll do a morning uh, daily five minutes. So I think meditation sometimes feels like this super, like people are like, I can't just sit there and think of nothing for a half hour. Like you don't have, that's not how it works. The whole idea is, can you notice your thoughts moving away? And are you able to bring them back so that you practice bringing your mind to where your feet are, right? Can you be in the same, instead of having your brain time travel? Um, So, uh, but the other thing with mindfulness, um, I mean, there's, there's so many ways to practice it. It's kind of, um, you know, when you really tune into that, it could be something as simple as doing the dishes and actually just making sure your brain is with the act of doing the dishes. It could be uh, one of the tools I'll use sometimes is um, uh, you have to name um, five things that you see and five things that you hear in any given moment to kind of like bring yourself back into the present moment. So there's all different ways to kind of practice this idea of mindfulness. And when you practice it, in you know your daily life that's going to be something that's going to help you when you're um you're training and, and competing as well other questions all right then i have one more how do you get the book <laughs> well you can get it in the back of the room <laughs> see back there is helping us uh, it's also available on amazon target barnes and noble um, most major online retailers and some smaller ones as well. So. And then talk as we close about your Injured Athletes Club and oh. if people want to engage in that. Yes. Because yeah. that is a community of injured, a lot of injured athletes that they could tap into if they're feeling lonely. Yes. What's that about? Um, so that's where all your injured friends are, that your new friends that you're going to meet are in the Injured Athletes Club. Um, so if you go to our website, it's uh, www.injuredathletesclub.com. There's all kinds of really great resources there um, for people coming back from injury. And then uh, also you can connect with the podcast, the Injured Athletes Club podcast. And then also we have a Facebook group, which is a support group for people that are going through injury. So it's a place where people get to talk about the, you know, they get, you get to talk about it with people that get it because they're right there in it with you or they've been there. Um, so there's all kinds of really great resources there. If you're an injured athlete or know someone that's injured, send them over to the website. Awesome. Thank you, Cindy. Thank you, Carrie. We really appreciate you coming to Rogue. This was awesome. Give them a round of applause, guys. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. And with that, we'll wrap episode 170. Thanks, y'all.